because otherwise I'm going to miss some of this. I, I'll cut it out and I think that doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so you edit this? Yeah, yeah, I'll edit the whole thing. So like, um, okay. thing, I'll send it to you beforehand as well. So if there's anything that you inadvertently mentioned that you don't want to disclose, that's a good chance to like go, okay, yeah, cool. Um, so probably the only thing that's off limit is my day job, which is MYOB, because I haven't um, got exactly. sign off. Yeah, so this, yeah. Is, this is a and, pricing profits discussion. Yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. And any sort of things you mentioned in the past, just, you know, make sure, you, you know, you're bound by confidentiality clauses. Yeah. So just like, yeah. talk about a different company, you know, something like that. <laughs> is, the, um, is the light all right for you? Yeah, light's fine. Um, yeah, look, my light's going to be worse than yours anyway. So, um, okay. Yeah, so, okay, uh, let me get my questions up. Anything with the questions that sort of, like, this is a very broad thing. I sometimes just go off down tangents, but like, that's kind of the crux of what I want to ask you, I suppose. Yeah, no, look, I, I sort of had a brief glance at it and I like going down tangents as well. So okay. <laughs> five minutes in, we could be completely off script and, and that's not the first time that's happened. So That's okay. Like, what I'll do is I'll just bring you back with like a subtle cue and like, okay, you know, because I'm mindful of time and we don't have unlimited yeah, yeah. As much as I want to go on and ask you like stuff for two hours. Um, yeah, people <laughs> think the fan is about 50 minutes, or if that. Um, yeah, no worries. So uh, do we have a drink that we're going to share or, or pretend to share or, or not? Well, I could run down and get one. Uh, like I've got a little red wine here or something. If you want to open one and just pretend we're drinking red wine or something. Or... Give me two minutes. Okay, perfect. Let's do it. Oh, you're back. Nice. I have. I've got one of these. In a can. Oh, Guinness. <laughs> Guinness. <laughs> nice. What are you, Irish or something? Or? <laughs> my my great grandfather actually worked at um, Guinness in Dublin for twelve years as transport manager. Oh. Yeah. And I never really liked Guinness until I went on the Guinness tour, and you get this obligatory pint of Guinness at the end of it included in your admission ticket and you, you just don't want to waste it so you learn to like it at that point. Well, um, with that said, I'm going to pour my Guinness <laughs> into a cup. <laughs> <laughs> a very small cup, but yeah, cheers. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being on the show, John. Pleasure. It goes with my shirt. Get on the beers, Guinness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what's the deal with the beers and the pricing profits? Is that your catchphrase or? No, this is, so this is a, this is a $25 t-shirt with some of the money going to help um, people that have lost their work through COVID-19. And it's a fundraiser by a bottle shop in Mooney Ponds called Fizz and Hop or Hop and Fizz. Okay. Fizz and Hop. Um, so I just thought it was good cause and you know, it's, yeah, I like the t-shirt and it's helping someone out. 
Oh, great. I like it. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are in sort of distress right now, so whatever anyone can do. I yeah, say, absolutely. Like, go for it. Small little things help. So Absolutely. Getting back to you. Um, so your name's John as well. Great name, by the way. Um, Mum and, and Dad couldn't afford the H, though. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> well, actually, my, my full name is Jonathan with an, without the H. With the? So ah. The contraction would be the same. But uh, anyway, I just got sick of people spelling it with HN, so I just went with it. Um, that aside, we wanted to talk to you about pricing because you're um, the pricing god um, and, and you lead the pricing profits, uh, um, I want to say enterprise or, or marketplace. Um, but over to you, give us a quick sort of overview of um, who you are and, and what you've been doing and what you're doing right now. Yeah, so John Manning, um, a sort of pricing veteran, I guess you'd, you'd call me. Um, started off um, working in pricing in the oil industry. Um, couldn't figure out where the prices were coming from. And I think 30 years later, they're still trying to work out where the prices come from in the oil industry. Um, from there, I went to, um, I went into the aviation industry. I did 10 years at ANSET, which um, sadly, it's the anniversary of the uh, demise of the airline today. Um, but I priced, I always like to say I priced two fares at ANSET, the fares customers eat and the fares customers pay. Because um, I worked at in-flight catering and I actually priced the meals. And at the time, ANSET had about seven flight kitchens around the country and um, international airlines would pick up catering from, um, from, that, from those kitchens. Um, then I headed over to the UK for six years and um, I worked for a bloke by the name of Stelios Hajiyuanu, who's not very well known in this part of the world, but he is more famous for starting EasyJet. Um, and at that time, he was uh, starting two businesses and he gave me a choice of which role I'd like, the working in the rent-a-car business or the internet cafe business. And I thought, oh, rent-a-cars, it's a bit too much like um, airlines. So I went for the internet cafes. And we opened an internet cafe every month for 22 months, all the way through the UK, um, through Europe and across to, to New York. And these were internet cafes on steroids. So the largest was in New York City and it had 700 workstations in it. Um, and then, you know, these, these places don't exist anymore because this thing called Wi-Fi came along and nobody needs internet cafes anymore. Well, it's been, it's been sort of repackaged into WeWork or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, came, I sort of came back to Australia um, around 9-11 and um, sort of just fell into consulting for, for about 15 years. Um, and then just recently returned um, about four years ago back into um, corporate land. Okay, nice. I like it. Perfect. Yeah, and yeah. Um, now you're sort of working with airlines still or tech or services or? Yeah, tech services. Yeah, I don't do a lot in product stuff. So anything you can drop on your foot, I don't really do it. Okay. Um, but, but services, um, so many people wanting subscription businesses. How do I start? How do I price a subscription model? Um, is, a, is a huge one at the moment. But yeah, people come to you and they say, oh, it's really funny, like five years ago, 10 years ago, people come and you say, oh, I want to be the next Facebook of my industry. And then Facebook sort of um, died away. And then everybody wanted to be the next Uber of their industry. Um, and now the, the, the flavor of the month is I want to be the net, next Netflix of my industry. And you know, everybody just wants to jump on the subscription bandwagon. Well, that is one of my questions. So, but before that, um, let's just go backtrack and like, you know, um, if you want to define what pricing strategy is or, or what you do as a, as a pricing manager or revenue optimizer or whatever you want to classify yourself as, like, you know, what is pricing strategy? What is pricing strategy? It's, um, 
it's uh, knowing knowing what you what you're charging for and getting a fair price for the value that you provide. Um, so there and there are numerous ways to do that. Um, you know, I, I sort of think there's about uh, what, about nine different pricing models or strategies, if you like, sort of starting from some that are sort of generally developed in a business. They're they're very inward focused. So that's things like cost plus pricing. Um, which about 70 to 80% of companies do. All they do is they add up their costs, throw on a margin, cross their fingers and hope for the best. Um, and you've got things like market-driven pricing. So you just let the competitor set your price. Um, Non-linear pricing, you see that in a lot of utilities where there's a charge to be on a network and then there's a charge for what goes through the network. And then you've got the dynamic pricing and revenue management that the, um, the airlines became famous for and have been transferred over to the hotels and things like that. So there's sort of four sort of inward looking or inward developed pricing models. Then you've got some pricing models that are co-created with customers, um, which, are, which are generally value-based pricing. You've got some that are, um, are completely created by the customer. So auctions, for example, at the end of the day, a company provides the mechanism for the auction, but the customer is the one that actually determines the price. Um, and then you've got, things like pay what you want pricing. So um, John Bon Jovi has a restaurant or two in, uh, in New Jersey and the pricing is pay what you want. Um, but if you can't pay, you do have to do the dishes for an hour instead, <laughs> which is a little bit different to lentil as anything here in Melbourne. I was going to mention which, that. Yeah. There. Yeah. In Abbotsford, yeah. Right? Uh, Abbotsford and St Kilda, I think. I don't know how many of them are still around, but they were pay what you want model. And they probably got... Um, I think they got cleaned out by a, a, a drunken party after one um, one um, Melbourne Cup and um, ran into a few difficulties. But um, that's uh, that's part and parcel of a pay what you want model. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, look. Um, it, I think you know pricing is evolving from very static sort of cost plus models, you know, all the way to more sort of dynamic pricing and subscription recurring revenues. So really want to talk about that. Um, so you know, what isn't pricing strategy though? If we had to exclude things that maybe your work gets confused with? Um, I, yeah, that's a really interesting question because there's no, there's no, there's always this argument is pricing art or is pricing science? And I sort of come down firmly on the art side because, you know, most, um, most sciences, sciences have a repeatable law of, um, you know, body of law. So someone can come along and repeat it. But with pricing, you're dealing with human behavior and, what someone's prepared to pay for a Damien Hurst or an Ant, a Warhol is completely different from the next person, right? So there's there's nothing repeatable or scientific about um, about pricing, um, and there's there's no definition or dictionary of pricing and so forth. So some of those strategies that I just mentioned, for one company they're a strategy, and for another company they're a tactic. Um, so you know, using time, for example. Um, you can use, airlines use time really well. The earlier the book, you cheaper you, you fly. But, and that's using it as a strategy. But then you've got a retailer like a JB Hi-Fi who might say, we've got a special on, on big TVs, but you've got to buy it before the grand final because it's a grand final special and they're using it tactically. So um, there's no real hard and fast rules in, in pricing. It's just, I just, the critical thing is knowing where you're going and why. 
And I always like to think, you know, a strategy is, you know, you've got a strategy when you, you know what your next move is after your competitor responds to your next move. Because um, some people just actually don't look beyond, you know, what their, what their next pricing move is, never mind what the competitor is going to do. Yeah, and I think you've, you've raised a really good point here, but the difference between, you know, approaches or strategies versus, you know, the tactics of the expression of that sort of overarching approach or strategy. So, you know, um, I did listen to some of your previous interviews and you did mention things like, you know, Goldilocks pricing and heroin pricing. <laughs> Can you explain to me what those two are? Yeah, so Goldilocks pricing. So Goldilocks pricing is, it really comes to us from behavioral economics. And it basically says, if you give the customer one choice, you've got a 50-50 chance of closing the deal and that's it. If you give customers two choices, you will force them into making a price-based decision. They'll go, okay, that one's cheaper. Probably 60% of the time they'll take the cheaper option. But when you give them three options, there's two things that happen. The first thing is the customer says, which one am I going to buy? And that's a different question to am I going to buy? And then the, third, the second thing that happens is that they force, you force them to make a value-based decision. So they actually go, okay, why is there a difference between these three price points? Because in the previous example with two, they've just gravitated towards the price. Now they start to look at the differences in the features. And if you look at any SaaS business online and look at their pricing page, you'll see their features are spec'd out and so forth. And that's exactly why so they're like, doing so it so and then and then some of them say like, hey that's price anchoring you know it's like okay we'll put you know uh, one at the, each end that we don't want them to choose so they like force them into the middle yeah so there's more behavioral economics the center stage effect absolutely and you've also got anchoring so th this is <laughs> there's no consistency in this but a lot of people put their cheapest product on the left and a lot of people put it on the right i actually prefer it on the left because the first you know, in Western countries, you read from left to right. So the first price you see is $100 and you go, okay, that's my anchor. And the next one's 50. Oh, that's a little bit cheaper. And the next one's five. Okay, I don't want to be a tight ass. I'm not going to go for that one. So I come back to the, the 50. Whereas if you have them the other way around, you see the $5 first and everything else is expensive. Oh, that's it. So heroin, pri heroin, heroin pricing price. is just getting customers hooked on your pricing. So, um, and really that's, um, well, getting them hooked up more on your product first and then your pricing. So most product-led growth companies at the moment are actually masters at this. So Zoom, like we're on at the moment, is, is great at this. Grab an email address um, and bang, it can start marketing to you. And the product drives the growth. Um, if you ask a lot of businesses how, how Slack first started to get used in their business, they've actually got no idea. Because somebody's just come on, um, and, and started using it, they've messaged somebody else, it's that network effect, um, and bang, the next thing you know, you've hit the, the limit, you're hooked on the product, the heroin, and bang, you go and buy it. Nice, hey, so um, also to do with that, like, do we even need fixed pricing anymore? Like, um, can't we just use dynamic pricing with all the sort of tech models and, you know, real-time data? <sighs> it, you, you would think hypothetically the world is moving to that direction. Um, but I guess there's, there's always swings and roundabouts. So you need to be able to um, create the, the justification for why someone got a better price than you. So, you know, if we rewound the clock 40 years ago and you and I were sitting on a plane, say, from Melbourne to Brisbane, and I said, hey, John, how much do you pay for your ticket? You'd say $600. And I'd say, geez, I paid $1,200. I'm really annoyed about that. What's happened now is 
the airlines have trained us to get in early, right? So if, I, if we sit down next to each other on a plane, which we can't do at the moment, and I say the same question to you, um, you say, oh, my ticket was $600. And the first question I would then ask you is, when did you book? Because the airline has trained us to book early to get the best possible fares. Um, so as long as you are creating um, that sort of fence, um, then dynamic pricing is going to work. But when, um, when that fence is difficult to defend or define, that's when you're going to run into um, to difficulties with it. Okay. And look, um, one of the most popular pricing strategies I come across uh, when I talk to clients as well is um, cost plus, cost plus, sorry. So, you know, they'll take a cost base of their operating uh, expenses and they'll sort of add a premium on top of that and, hey, that's our price. Um, it, do you find that's the most um, popular method of pricing maybe people yeah, are so most aware? Yeah, absolutely. So there's about 70 to 80% of companies, according to some estimates, that use cost plus pricing. Wow. And, you know, when you think about it, it, it is actually really simple. You just add up your costs and throw it on your markup, cross your fingers and hope for the best. But, you know, the reality is that most people, um, you know, ask accountants how good their cost estimates are. And they're not 100% comfortable that they've got the right um, methodology to allocate costs across businesses, across, never mind across products, for example. But the other thing is, have a think about this for a minute. So right now we are in COVID lockdown. Um, a lot of retailers aren't open. Um, a, lot of, a lot of businesses full stop aren't open. But just think about what they've gone through in the last couple of months. They've probably, um, they probably changed their, um, their rent arrangements or their mortgage arrangements with their, with their banks or their landlords and so forth. They may have trouble finding suppliers that supply them, you know, if they're sourcing material from, from China or other places. Their labour costs are probably all over the place. How can you set cost plus pricing when your costs are all over the place like that? Um, so... You know, I've written a blog post on this sort of saying RIP um, cost plus pricing because it is just such a dangerous methodology to use, particularly right now. Interesting, interesting. So why does everyone use it? Because it's easy? Because it's easy. Um, and I think a lot of people also use price, um, you know, cost increases to defend their price increases. And years ago, that used to be fine. You know, if you're... If you, inflation rate was running at 2%, you could get away with a price increase of 2% because it was under that psychological radar of the inflation rate or 4% or whatever the case may be. Um, but, you know, go over that. Um, and I've always said the bigger the, the bigger the price increase, the bigger the justification you need to provide for it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an easy way to do it. And, um, you know, I think there's also the element of... Um, of budgets and planning cycles and so forth. So just rewind back to the 1st of July and you know, you'd find half of Australian companies put their prices up because it's a new financial year. <laughs> new budget, new targets, bang, off they go. <laughs> but, but no one buys anything for because of the costs, right? If yeah. I ask you which telco you're with and why, you'll probably say, oh, I'm, I'm with them because of the coverage and so forth. Or, or, you know, they had a really good deal on a handset or so forth. Nobody says, oh, I'm with a big telco because I really love that cost base. Or I really like that. I really like that cafe's, um, you know, cost base and things like that. You don't say that thing. Well, so that's interesting then. It brings me to my next point, which is like, what is the best pricing strategy to use um, in, in your opinion? Well, I think you... you at, so at the end of the day, if you, if you think that the, there's three variables that we're playing with, right? Costs, 
70, 80% of companies use cost plus pricing. I don't care about cost. I don't care about your costs. So there's a point of friction there. I care about them, but the customer doesn't. There's, um, um, there's, there's pricing. And I want to maximize the price that I get from my customers and the customer wants to minimize their price. So that's a point of friction as well. But both, both people care about value. As a, as a supplier, I want to provide as much value as I can. And as a customer, I want to get as much value as I can. So if you can make that tangible link between price and value, then you've got a, like a long-term sustainable um, pricing model. And for me, that's the, that's the best one. But it does come with caveats. So if, you, if your value decreases, hypothetically, you should be prepared to drop your prices as well. Well, that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, do, you do see it from time to time. <laughs> I saw a price decrease today, actually, but I won't mention it. But <laughs> yeah, but, but no, but it does happen. It's not a good and look, if you, you know, Yeah. And look, there's, you know, there's, <laughs> I was thinking about this this morning because I actually hate advertising with, um, with, with talking animals, but there is an ad on the TV at the moment with a talking quacker talking about how a certain private health insurance company has not put up their prices. So, you know, it, it does have, and the others have obviously because they did a, um, you know, six month delay after COVID broke out. But um, yeah, there's, there, there, are, there are price increases not happening. Um, that's for sure. And there've been some price decreases happening as well. Nice. So like, um, I also heard about you, you're a bit of a history buff in terms of, you know, this area of pricing. So um, really interested to hear um, some things that I heard about, like pricing on the Thames, I think, uh, surge pricing on the Thames <laughs> and um, like really old pricing strategies that maybe people aren't aware of, like uh, just throw me some, some interesting history. So I don't, um, yeah, I, I don't mind the odd history book now and then and um, reading through a couple, I have to obviously the, probably the oldest pricing model I can find is auctions. So Joseph with his coat of many technicolor coat and many colors and so forth was actually sold into slavery by his brothers as part of an auction. Um, and then in the, during the great fire of London in 1666, um, the boatmen on the river Thames actually doubled or tripled their fares to evacuate passengers from the, um, the north side of the River Thames to the south side. So theoretically, you know, you can trace the origins of surge pricing back to, um, to 1666, if you like. They also used to have hangings at Tyburn, which is a, you know, a, a part of West London, which is, is no longer called Tyburn. But the, to go and watch a hanging, as, as entertaining as that might be, there was, there was higher prices could be commanded depending on the level of interest in the person being hung. So we've actually had dynamic pricing around for quite a long time. Interesting. Okay. So, so if there's a celeb getting hung then, and there's a lot of, you know, people want to go to it, you'd have to pay more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or, you know, you know, a hardened criminal versus an unknown criminal, I guess. Oh, so it's all about the story. So if it was a, if it was a, okay. So like a Ned Kelly type, you'd, you'd have to pay a lot. Yeah, like Jack the Ripper, you'd, you know, you'd get a you'd get higher coin for Jack the Ripper versus, you know, your little petty thief that was um, picking pockets in Covent, Covent Garden or something. I like it. Okay, so you mentioned before, like, behavioural economics and how that sort of plays into to pricing. I'm really interested to get into this because, obviously, you know, economists and behavioural psychologists, um, you know, I formed this sort of new discipline. Um, how does that apply to pricing? Um, like, we talked before about price anchoring, um, but do you need to understand behavioral economics to do pricing really well at a tactical level? 
you don't have to, but it certainly helps. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, just, um, you know, things like the, the layout of pricing pages, for example, like we've just talked about the anchoring on the left versus the right and so forth. Um, sometimes it's really hard to actually quantify the, the revenue uplift associated with things like that because you've got to A-B test it and often um, you might have changed prices the same, you know, at the same time you've changed the layout of the page and you can't separate A from B and so forth. Um, but there are, certainly, um, there are certainly benefits in having a good knowledge of behavioural economics. Um, and that can be, you know, also decoy products. You know, decoy products are magnificent. So, you know, that's the $800 bottle of wine in the restaurant that you don't buy because it's just too expensive. But, geez, it makes the $80 bottle of wine look really affordable, right? And that's the one they want to sell you. Um, so there, there's things like, there's decoys like that. Um, the first edition of the Apple Watch, if you remember that, there was a $25,000 version of that. That was a decoy to make the other ones look better. There's um, Norma's restaurant at the La Meridian Hotel in New York that has a $1,000 omelette on the menu. And it's there to make the $100 omelette look really, um, really affordable. Or it's so, better get so decoys to come in, right? <laughs> <laughs> so decoys are really good. Telstra used to have a two gigabyte ISP plan. Now, I don't know anybody that would last a day on two gigabytes of data but it got you onto the product ladder. So there was a decoy at the bottom of the product ladder. You can have them at the top of the product ladder. Um, but there's all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of things, but you've got to use it the correct way. Um, there's a chance that, you know, there's increasingly, it's increasingly being recognized as recognized that nudges that are not beneficial to the customer are called sludges. Um, so, um, you know, things that are beneficial to the company but are beneficial to the customer um, are not good things to do. Um, so I, I think it's critical to, um, to, to use behavioural economics in mutually beneficial ways, not to the advantage of the seller over the customer. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've seen some of that and um, in the discussions uh, about dark UI, which is um, ways of sort of funneling uh, the user interface um, the user into like a certain direction that maybe increases the price they'll pay or you know the CLV or whatever you want to say so um, maybe that's where behavioral economics can can be used for for bad <laughs> yeah I I mean there's a, I, I see an example every year when I go and renew a domain name there's a one-year price a two-year price and a three-year price and the one-year price is about $25. The two-year price is about $100. And the three-year price is about $70. And I just, I think they've got the, the decoy in the wrong place. Um, so, but yeah, you've got to, I think you've got to, you will get called out, whether it's on a dark patterns website or something like that, if you're trying to use behavioral economics to your advantage over the customer. <laughs> well, speaking of that, I really want to ask you this, which is the next question, which is, um, you know, we hear about um, bait and switch methods, a lot of um, small business, so I call them entrepreneurs, um, and let's <laughs> say less uh, experienced, um, you know, business coaches or uh, small businesses that are starting out, you know, bordering on fraud. Anyway, they use some very dubious pricing practices where they, you know, maybe have an introductory price, but then you try and buy that and it's all sold out, but it's never been offered anyway. So what, where does pricing sort of go into that illegal 
um, or let's say more dubious territory rather than on the higher side of where it should be? Um, well, you just probably just jump onto the uh, consumer regulators website and you can pick up a, a little flyer of um, dodgy webs, dodgy, you know, dodgy pricing tactics and stuff like that. So the, the competition law is pretty, pretty clear on, um, you know, where, where the legal stuff finishes and the illegal stuff starts. Um, so, you know, deliberately bait and switching. So never ever having any sort of, um, inventory of a particular product that you're actually promoting and and you always have the intention of, um, you know, upselling the customer onto another product is, is exactly what you're talking about. You know, another common one um, used to be really popular with rugs where rugs would be, you know, 50% off, but um, they were probably marked up the day before. So the 50% was, you know, just just only a recent phenomenon. So you can't mark up to make things look cheaper the next day, stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's pretty, it's pretty clear. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. So, so. And then walk, walking in the park with you, walking with the park with your competitors and so forth and having a chat about, you know, you charge this price, I charge that price. Obviously that stuff's, um, you know, illegal in most countries around the world. Might not be in North Korea, but pretty much <laughs> everywhere else. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Then let's let's stay away from those. Then um, <laughs> don't quote me on the North Korea though. <laughs> <laughs> Never been there. I've got a friend who's been there, but I haven't. <laughs> um, so let's like <laughs> let's say then let's get back onto the high side of pricing and let's say um you you mentioned value based pricing and like personally I I come from a marketing sort of background and that's the way. High price from a value perception basis, right? And someone asked me, you know, how do you how do you put your pricing? I'm like, well, put it as high as possible, right? <laughs> as much as people are willing to pay for it. And um, but there's a lot of nuances that go with that. So, are you saying that the, the best pricing method in in your um, uh, opinion is sort of value based and and going down tactically from there? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so so how does that work? Um, so there's particularly in B2B markets, there's three sources of economic value that can provide to your customers. So you, John, you can go and work for a company and you can either increase their revenue, reduce their costs, or you can minimize their risk. Three sources of value. But the beauty of all three of them is they're, they are quantifiable. So you, you might be able to, you might have a software product that can increase a company's revenue by 50%. Value-based pricing is then about sharing with that sharing with that customer the economic gain you've provided them and you monetize that through um through, through pricing so if you can increase their revenue by 50 percent, you might take 1.5 percent of that as your pricing um so instead of going in and talking about a, you know a one million dollar software solution you're actually talking about a much smaller number which is 1.5 percent of revenue or so, or something like that if you look at um if you look at some cloud-based um, software products, for example, um, the, the, the person using them doesn't have to worry about cyber attack or ransomware attack and things like that because that's outsourced to the company that's providing the, um, the, the cloud-based products. So that's how you're minimizing risk for your customers. Um, and you know, just a straight up example of you know, doing something more efficiently would be an example of how you could save customers um, costs in terms of, of labor and stuff like that or processing time and so forth. So they are much more sustainable ways to, um, to price than on the basis of, of your costs, which customers don't care about. 
<laughs> okay, well, getting on that thing, is that because um, a lot of pricing decisions are made by accountants who, who look at cost centers, right, um, in isolation from one another, um, instead of like from a customer perspective? So there's this sort of natural friction between accounting and marketing and, and maybe strategy areas of the business. Is, is that where this cost plus sort of mantra comes from? Yeah, it, it probably did. You know, accounting's got its roots in in, it, in Italy and, you know, hundreds of years ago and so forth. And, you know, someone mentioned to me the, the word count is in accountant's name for a reason. They actually count all the costs and so forth. So I think it's probably fair to say that, yes, they, you know, it does come from from that accounting, um, you know, that, that legacy of accounting is where cost plus pricing has come from. Great. Yeah. And do you see friction between those sort of two, um, I would say, different uh, viewpoints when it comes to pricing? Like you've worked with lots of clients and lots of companies. Like uh, so I see the greatest friction, and, and it, it's, it's actually changing, but the greatest friction was between pricing and sales because pricing thought of sales as the unpricing department and sales thought of pricing as the sales prevention department. Right, so you could never win. But you know, the really interesting thing in large organisations is that pricing touches every single part of the business, whether it's legal through the T's and C's, whether it's um, it's finance because the CFO wants to make more money, whether it's sales because the sales director wants to sell more units, operations because of enablement, enablement and onboarding and stuff like that. So there's there's often um, hardly any part of a business that doesn't get touched by, you know, changes to a pricing model, pricing strategy, communicating to customers, marketing are in there and stuff like that. Um, so that, t that tension is, is, has been there for a, lot, for a long time between um, sales and pricing in particular. But I think a lot of business, the smart businesses are really changing that, um, that approach now. And they actually think, okay, um, Here's my, here's my product team and they're doing the value creation. Um, here's, my, here's my sales team and they're talking to the customers and with my pricing, I'm extracting the value from the product I've created and so forth. And in that model, everybody's sort of moving in the same direction rather than up against each other like they would have been in the, the sales versus pricing model. Um, so it's really starting to change, but it, it's also industry to industry as well. So you look at, um, if you take the airlines, for example, um, which I've done a fair bit of work in, um, there's only about half a dozen people in a, in a half decent sized airline that can actually change the prices because everything's done through a computer. There's a central reservation system. But if you're, um, you know, if you're out in rural, um, rural markets selling fast moving consumer goods to supermarkets or groceries, you need a bit of like pricing flex on the ground out in the in the field and so forth so in those industries you know everybody can can play around with the pricing a bit so um you know you've got quite a range from highly decentralized to highly centralized pricing depending on the industry and so forth so that's where technology drives the industry drives the pricing model um in other industries, you know, accountants have driven the pricing model in the past. So it's traditionally cost plus um, and all sorts of things. Yeah, I like it. Look, um, and you mentioned here, like um, we touched on discounting, right? Um, and sales and, and pricing and accountants. So um, well, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about um, is, you know, getting into what's called a discount trap where you need to increase demand. So you reduce the price, you get a, a small sugar hit 
of extra sales. And, and um, if you listen to Byron Sharp and, and et al, uh, all it does is bring forward people that were already in that decision uh, phase and inflates your sales. And then you have a similar decrease in the preceding months. So um, how do you um, discount properly without getting hooked on discounting forever for? Yeah, it's, an, it's another drug, isn't it? There's a really, uh, there's a great quote from the founder of the Brewdog Brewery in Scotland who says, um, uh, discounting is like the crack cocaine of business. You're the, um, you're, you're the dealer and the junkie and you get addicted and you just can't get off it. Um, and I remember once I was doing a, I was doing a workshop with a legal firm about pricing and um, by accident rather than design, there was, um, there was only one female in the room. And at some point during the workshop, she turned around and said, discounting's like a one night stand, you know, and everybody's jaw just dropped. And there was this deadly silence in the room. Um, and she looked around and she said, okay, I think I better explain what I meant there. <laughs> and she said, once you, you discount once and you get a reputation for doing it. And, and it is true. You know, if you, look at, if you look at retailers in normal economic times, not the times we've got now, but, you know, in days not too long ago, um, if they didn't have a sale on, there was no footfall in the shops whatsoever because they had conditioned the market to, to discounting. Um, you know, and the discounting is like a one-night stand is, is actually true. I think for me, the key to discounting is that, it's a negotiation, not a surrender. So if a customer wants a discount, you need to get something in return. Um, and whether that is a, is a deeper share of wallet or a wider share of wallet, that can just be the, you know, a simple principle that you adopt to say, we, we do give discounts, um, but we need something in return. And I'm not anti-discounts because if you go back, um, 10, 15 years ago, the average level of discounting in, you know, in most markets might have been 10, 20%. It's proliferated incredibly since then. I mean, you've just given, you know, all these, all these retailers and so forth. And it's now ingrained in the customer's psychology because they love the thrill of the hunt, of finding a discount, and then the thrill of the kill of getting the discount. Because once you get the discount, you've got the bragging rights that you can go and, you know, plaster all over social media and so forth. It's great for social media. Um, so discounting is not going to go away and it doesn't matter whether it's a B2B market or a B2C market, it's here to stay, but you need to manage it strategically. And it is simple things like say authorization levels in B2B markets. So the salesperson is only authorized to discount up to 10% and then he's got to go back to the, you know, the head of sales or, or somebody else and get the authorization to do a, um, to, to do a cheaper price. Um, or in, in consumer markets, um, it's, it's take it or leave it sort of thing, so. Yeah, I like it. And um, yeah. you mentioned like the way to prevent that is sort of through, you know, asking for something else or product bundling or putting conditions on the sale. So I really like where we're going with that. And that's what I want to ask you next, which is, you know, how, how far can we remove pricing from the rest of the, uh, marketing decision, you know, product bundling, um, you know, distribution effects and, and promotional effects. Like, can you separate it all out or does it really need to be sort of thought of coherently with all the other uh, elements of the offering? 
my, my personal belief is it does have to be really holistic. I mean, increasingly now, you know, particularly if you look at what's happened in the last six months, all of a sudden, everybody has got, um, you know, you can buy digitally, you can contactless delivery, contactless payment and so forth. We are digitising at an incredible rate. I think Microsoft has seen the equivalent of between two and five years of digitization in the last six months. Um, so you, you've got to, you, you have to, um, you have to think holistically and the, the markets will come, the face-to-face -face markets will come back. And if people haven't thought strategically about their pricing, they're going to have a whole lot of channel conflict. You know, is it going to be cheaper to, to, to pay by cash in the store or card online and so forth? Hey, let's, um, let's run with that. Because so we, we, we're in for some that. really interesting times. Yeah, look, you just uh, you just uh, gave me a thought because, um, yeah, we're professional services. Say, look, what possibly both of us do, um, which is, you know, consulting. Um, yeah, there's this stigma between, um, you know, charging a high rate for, you know, consulting work and not being physically present. And now with the whole, um, you know, we're not allowed to meet face-to-face, -face, um, that stigma's gone. So now people are more conditioned to transact and uh, from a consulting point of view um, with business advice online, like we're doing right now. Um, so, you know, um, really interested to see like uh, what your thoughts are on, on that moving forward into the future. Like, will we need to have as many face-to-face -face discussions or will people spend more than, you know, the average $65 online now, um, now that the sort of trust is there? Yeah, I, it, it's a really interesting question. So, I, th I think for consulting, yes, people will, um, it doesn't necessarily change the value proposition. You can, you know, you can consult to, to, um, to, to Zambia and Zimbabwe as much as you can consult to America if you want to, and that doesn't necessarily change. Um, because you, you're still delivering the same value. I, th I think the people who have missed the mark have been, um, conference organisers and event organisers who have tried to take their product online, but they haven't um, they haven't successfully um, monetized with the transfer online. They think they've thought because it's online, um, people are not going to pay for it. Um, I actually spoke at a conference a couple of months ago, and it was actually actually felt like you were at a conference venue, like you. At some point, there was there was hundreds of delegates attending, and at some point in time, you had to if you wanted to hear a certain panel, you had to go into a particular room, and another room for another panel, and another room for another panel, and then they had times when there was no speakers on, and you could browse browse virtual booths of exhibitors and so forth, and they monetized it successfully. But so many other businesses, I see, uh, um, you know, just haven't been successful in monetizing their their digitally delivered product because they've just, well, it's just oh, because it's digital and, you know, there's no hard costs involved with a hotel or a venue. We, we can't charge for it. And I think that the thinking is wrong. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. I've noticed the same. Actually, I've seen a lot of events um, where they have like a free option, but then it's defeated. So you don't get access to certain, you know, keynote speakers or you don't get access to certain rooms, but you get a, general overview and then the, sort of the upsell is to different packages much like you would in a physical conference except that yeah. know, there is no zero dollar option 
Um, so I have seen that sort of creeping in now. Uh, I think people are starting to realize that. Yeah. Yeah, but certainly, you know, maybe two or three months ago, you know, you if you if you saw uh, an invitation to a webinar or something, and there was no pricing attached, and I think for me, I thought, oh, there's another sales pitch. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't so much a, a knowledge sharing thing as a, as a bit of a sales pitch. Yeah, no, and just just for the listeners as well, September 2020, so um, we are maturing uh, past the whole lockdown <laughs> era um, now. Well, we hope so. <laughs> That's great. Um, so. Um, <laughs> I want to get on to, we're touching on this a bit, but some of the mistakes people make when, when they're doing pricing. Um, so I've, I've worked with a lot of startups um, very early stage and, you know, they set prices really low to get adoption, but the trade-off is that they're conditioning clients to expect lower prices and then they have trouble going up to enterprise customers, for example. Um, what are some of the real bad sort of doozies that you've seen, um, you know, companies make or, or perhaps you've made yourself? I don't make mistakes. No, no, just kidding. So that, that's really interesting because um, I've been doing um, a startup, a, a pricing workshop for um, a startup program for about seven or eight years. And when I first started doing them, I remember at the start of every session, I'd say, okay, round the tables, what do you do? What's your business and so forth? And what's your monetization model? And when I first started doing these workshops, nine times out of 10, people would go, I don't have a monetization model. I'm building an audience. I'm building Twitter followers. I'm building Facebook likes. I'm building YouTube subscribers and I'll monetize later. If I do that workshop today, the numbers are the opposite. So, um, you know, nine out of 10 are monetizing from day one and only one will be going after an audience or eyeballs and so forth. So I think there's a, yeah, particularly in the in the startup space, is a, a realization that um, people actually provide value with their products and services from day one, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with monetizing from day one. Um, and you can guarantee that probably the second question any venture capitalist is going to ask you is, "What's your monetization model?" Um, so I think that's a that's a fundamental shift that that has really happened in the marketplace just, in, in that just, sphere. For just them. on that note, then I really want to hear what you think, because um, uh, I think the era, personally, I've seen the era of, of SaaS sort of mature, uh, especially sort of hitting peak maybe 2014, 15. Um, and previous to that, it was um, grow at all costs because you want to get widespread adoption. And a lot of those business models were funded and by expand. like G, yeah. GPC capital, right? Like AKA SoftBank, et cetera. Um, so it was less about monetizing now, more about, okay, let's, let's fund with debt and monetize later um, because we want to be first to market, get adoption, and then, you know, we can, we can price accordingly. So do you think that isn't the case now that there's so many startups out there and so many options that people are having to ask this monetization question upfront? I don't think it's universal. I think there's been um, an elevated level of commercial savviness amongst some startups that actually back themselves to, um, to, to monetize from day one, you know, particularly for like, you know, independent consultants and so forth, there's always this um, confidence question. You don't back yourself that you provide value. Um, so I think some of that is, um, is disappearing from the market and whether that's coming through VCs or whether it's coming through angel investors, family, fuel, friends and fools. Or, I think that's, that's sort of changing, but it's, it's definitely not universal. Um, 
In regards to um, pricing mistakes, I mean, there's some, there's some absolutely magnificent examples around of, of, of pricing mistakes. Um, you know, some of my favourites are the, there's, uh, the Hilton Hotels in Tokyo and Osaka. I know maybe 10 or 15 years ago, accidentally uploaded rooms for $2 a night. Um, so there was, there was some person that actually booked a year at the Tokyo Hilton because it was cheaper than living at home for a year. Um, so, you know, there's that. There's the famous, um, there was the famous incident where the chairman of Coca-Cola, the CEO of Coca-Cola, told journalists in Brazil that his company was testing temperature-sensitive vending machines, which would put the price of Coke up on a hot day. Every, the, the whole world is still wondering what might have happened if he'd said it will drop the price of Coke on cold days because everybody arced up about the, the increase in price. Um, and even, um, I think it probably might have been this year or the year before, just before Christmas and just after Christmas, Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong uploaded first and business class seats for the price of economy airfares twice, two weeks apart. And they honoured the fair. First time around, Merry Christmas. Second time around, Happy New Year. But, you know, making a mistake once is, is acceptable, but you've got to learn from it. Making it twice is sort of unforgivable. So you know, there's, there's, plenty of, um, <laughs> there's plenty of pricing mistakes that, uh, that are around. I, that I actually know personally past. some people who took advantage of that uh, um, the airline pricing uh, thing because, I mean, there's uh, a couple of these frequent flyer groups and... Um, they call them you know, like frequent flyer hackers and they're always shifting points between here and here and have their algorithms and um, scanning programs to, to find exploits in some of the, the booking systems. And um, as soon as word gets out, you know, you've got a flurry of people really quickly. So yeah, I, I, I can completely relate to that. There used to be a website in Germany. It doesn't exist anymore, to, anymore but it would scour the internet for, for what it thought were pricing mistakes. And as soon as it saw it, bang, it's an email has gone out to 1.5 million subscribers saying, check this out. We think there's a mistake there. Um, you know, go and, go and get it. Because in those days, the, the sort of laws of offer and acceptance on the internet weren't as clear as they are in, say, you know, a face-to-face -face environment. But you think about that for a minute. You think about what impact that may have on a a big box hardware retailer that guarantees lowest prices or will meet the competitor by 10%, right? I've heard anecdotally, they only spend about 160,000 honoring that guarantee every year. I don't know how true that is, but what if that process was automated on a website like that? And there are websites in the US which will automatically hunt down a price match guarantee for 30 days after you've purchased something, automatically get the refund for you and clip the, clip a ticket on the way to putting the money in your bank account. So. I, want to, I want to speak about this. It's not one of my questions, but like um, I've been into, <laughs> let's use two examples. Um, there is a major supermarket in, in Australia. It's a bit of a duopoly between Coles or I call it Coles. We're a country of duopolies, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, basically. And, and Woolworths, which is the other one. And then we've got, um, you know, Bunnings Warehouse, which is the, the Home Depot of Australia, you would call it. Um, and um, both of them use this interesting pricing where... Um, they just want to get you in the store because it's a destination. And once you're there, um, you get your staples, which can be priced like reasonably um, competitively. But then, you know, you want to get 
one little piece of celery, but you've got to buy the whole bunch, like $3, you know? And, um, or you want to get a tiny sprig of herbs, but you're going to buy the whole bunch for, for $4 or whatever it is. And at Bunnings, they do it with the same with screws. Yeah, you just want four screws. You want to buy a pack and it's like $10. You're like, $10 with a little bit of metal. You know, it's, it's insane. Um, so is that some of the, the, the not decoy pricing, but um, convenience pricing that they use once you're in the store? They know, hey, um, we can get some high profit margin off these things and everything else will keep pretty low. It's, it's, it's probably a combination of um, pricing and packaging, actually. I, I really did. I didn't realize how big that was until once I went to, um, to India. And I actually saw all the little satchels in the, in the stores in India because, you know, the price of buying a big bottle of shampoo for a family of four or five or six and so forth is just astronomical on Indian wages. But they can afford um, satchels. So there is an element you know, aligning the product offering to, um, to the, the demographic of the market. Um, there's actually a lot of, um, there's actually a name for some of what you're talking about as well, which is shrinkflation. So uh, you actually don't, um, you don't change the price, but you shrink the contents of what it is you're selling. So um, you're probably aware that, um, you know, years ago there used to be 11 Tim Tams of, chocolate biscuits in a pack and now there's 10 and I think in some of the the newer flavors there's actually nine um, tonic bottles used to have 315 mils of, of tonic in them and they now have 300 mils and you'll see that there's a you know a bit of a shape to the bottle now which is where the 15 mils has um, has actually beer. come out like beer bottles used to be 375 and now they're 330 if you look closely yeah, well, this this one's a bit bigger, but um, <laughs> that's four forty. But um, yeah, it's it's shrinkflation, and it's um, and you used to be able to get away with that. It was really easy to get away with it. And then this thing called social media came along, and bang, the moment you um you do something like that, the whole world knows about it. Nice. Hey, so was there any pricing um, gigs that you've uh, you've rejected? Because you you know you do a lot of work <laughs> for pricing profits, um, so you must. See some very interesting things come across your desk. Like, uh, what, what are some of the best examples? Um, so there, there's been two, two engagements that I have declined. Um, the, the first one was um, this, uh, this elderly, this was years and years ago. And I think my, ch my son was about three and he was in childcare. Um, and it was in a, um, he went to childcare in Flemington, and um, it, which is a suburb of Melbourne where the famous horse race is held, but it's also an area where there's a lot of high-rise apartments and, and um, new arrivals to the country. So I was picking up my, um, my son from him, and this bloke came up to me and said, oh, Mr. John, Mr. John, I need to talk to you. And I was, this bloke's never spoken to me before. And I said, okay, what is it? He said, you do pricing. And I said, how did you know that? And he said, oh, Miss Kangaroo told me. And I said, it's Miss Kangaroo. And he said, kangaroo so and so and i said and i realized he was talking about um a mother of another child who was actually the marketing director at north melbourne football club at the time which are the north melbourne <laughs> kangaroos anyway so he said i need help with my pricing and he said what, what do you want help with and he said my daughter how much and i said oh i'm sorry i don't <laughs> that's not the things I, he wanted to know how many cows he could get for his daughter back home in Ethiopia. And I said, no, look, I don't do that. Um, 
that, that sort of pricing. You'll have to sort that one out for yourself, I'm afraid. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then the other one was this, um, (laughs) this lady, this lady, I can't remember what the site was. It was one of those, it was like an early um, Upwork site, I think years and years ago where people could, um, you know, contact um, service providers for, for consulting help and this this lady said I, I need help pricing a website i said oh no problem what's what's the website do and she says oh, it's a two-sided marketplace and i thought oh, she really sounds like what she knows what she's talking about and i said what does it do and he want a price for it and she says well it matches it matches prostitutes with brothels and i don't know whether i should monetize the brothels or the prostitutes and I said, well, that might require a bit of research. And she didn't find that funny, <laughs> which is which was how I intended it to be. And um, yeah, so I didn't do that project either. But th- they've been the two um, more unusual requests I've had for, for pricing <laughs> assistance. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I think there are two good passes on, on your half anyway. So that, that's great. <laughs> um, so getting onto that then, maybe um, what are some misconceptions or fallacies out there about pricing? Like um, uh, any, any things off the top of your head? Oh, look, I think that, yeah, there's a few. There's, um, <sighs> I think that one of the common misconceptions is pricing is, is easy to execute and easy to fix. Um, and it's not necessarily like if you, if you do make a mistake, it can be really, really costly. Um, I, you know, one of the best examples of that was 2011 when Netflix in the US split out their, their $9.99 DVD and streaming video subscription into two individual subscriptions. They got 82,000 hostile comments on their Facebook page in the, in the following week. Um, so, um, you know, people think it's easy, but it's, it's actually not. You're dealing with people's, you're dealing with people's money and you're wanting them to part with it. So, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a common mistake um, businesses make. Um, that's, that's probably the, 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 the probably the biggest one. It comes down to like conditioning, does it? It's like, you know, taking for granted that people are okay with, you know, or less price sensitive than maybe you think they are or, or vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, or thinking they won't notice things, and um, you know, thinking that they will just pay price increases when you know when when they when they won't. One one thing that comes up a lot, and I have these conversations, is um, you know, I learned economics, and obviously you you have a very good background in economics, um, and you know, we we're taught there's this demand supply curve, linear relationship between demand supply and price, right? Um, and often, you know, when you when you go and do work, uh, you find out that there's another whole layer of complexity around that simplistic model. Uh, for example, um, the price quality relationship between a lot of goods. So um, there's a lot of marketing studies that say um, the higher the price, um, the higher the quality perception, regardless of how good the product is um, at a tangible level, um, because it's all about perceptions. Um, and it's very ingrained in our psyche that if something's higher priced, we'll, it must be a better quality product. And even if it isn't, and we get it, we sort of convince ourselves that it is. Um, so, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And is there some other sort of misconceptions around that sort of pricing relationship with, with demand and supply? I've just lost my chain of thought there. Um, misconceptions around pricing. 
Um, oh, sorry, no. So my chain of thought was actually on demand and supply curves. So as much as I I have done an economics degree and so forth, I, I, I feel that allows me to take the proverbial out of economics from time to time. And I think um, there, there's a lot of useless stuff in economics um, and demand and supply curves are one of them because they are, (laughs) (laughs) well, they're they're good for, they should come with a warning for illustrative purposes only, right? Because they just don't represent reality. They're they're typically one product. Here's the demand and here's the supply. So, um, and it's price A and and demand B and so forth. But in the, in reality, there's very few companies that have one product and one price. You know, you know how, how many products did I've got a I've got a um, a page out of USA Today magazine, which was a Starbucks Starbucks advertisement from a few years back, saying they had eighty seven thousand different combinations of coffee. Right? How do you get eighty seven thousand different flavors of coffee on a demand and supply curve? You don't. Um, and and you know, just the calculations itself. You know, you really need to. You know, ideally, it needs to be. What, how much would John pay for it today? How much would he pay for it tomorrow for the same product? And, you know, nothing has changed. There's been no change to the competitive landscape. There's no change to advertising. So really there's a whole lot of sort of um, convoluted requirements around elasticity, which, um, you know, I, I question its benefits sometimes. And you typically calculate it on historical data and your pricing is all about today and tomorrow. So how useful is it? given how quickly markets change these days. That's a really good point. And I suppose, um, you know, I've read about Banksy, the famous UK artist. Um, you'd be familiar with him. Um, oh, who and he's shredding his picture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he did this really funny experiment in, in the UK where um, he, it was actually his work and he gave it to some street vendor who wasn't aware that it was Banksy's work. So they gave him like um, a bunch of these, uh, these paintings and um, they all sold for like, you know, 60 bucks each, right? Um, so, the, you know, the vendor made like 420 bucks, whatever it was. Um, and then when when those people found out later that, hey, that actually purchased the Banksy for like this massive discount, it was worth like 10 grand or 20 grand. Um, and, you know, it created this massive buzz, which is very good at doing. Um, he said that I, I know street art can feel increasingly like the market wing of an art career. Um, so I wanted to make some art without the price tag attached. There's no gallery, show, book, or film. It's pointless, which hopefully means something. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Well, I, what I find even more fascinating is when his picture went through the shredder, right? So if you go back to our discussion before one, about oh. pricing versus art versus science, right? You could have that in Christie's and... Yes, you could have scientifically predicted the price it would sell for, but the moment it went through the shredder, everyone's natural reaction was gone. That's worthless. The actual buyer actually thought he's got one of the, you know, one of the kind. It's actually increased in value because it's he's got a shredded Banksy. You know, who knew there was a shredder in the frame? So, you know, I think there's a there's um. There's two sides to Banksy. <laughs> you know, he, he might he might be happy to give his way his art. Um, you know, in in some markets, but in other markets, even by destroying it, he puts the price up. It's it's um, incredible. Interesting, interesting. And like I heard Pub- Pablo Picasso did something similar as well. 
Oh, there's a really interesting story about Picasso. So apparently um, he, he was sitting in a park one day in, in France and he'd been drawing. So he had a, a writing pad and a, and a pencil and so forth. And this lady was walking through the park and recognised him. And this is a really good lesson for, for anyone consulting. So this lady said, oh, it's a famous Picasso. Would you mind drawing my, my picture? And he said, sure, sit down in French. I don't do a French accent. So he, this lady sat down and two minutes later, she had this you know, this drawing that he'd, um, he'd penciled. And she said, oh, how much do I owe you? And she said something, and he said something like 10,000 francs. Um, and he said, the lady said, what do you mean 10,000 francs? It took you two minutes to draw that. And she said, and he turned around and said, yes, but it took me 30 years to learn how to draw it in two minutes. And that's, a, that's, that's really is the key for, you know, anyone who is thinking of billing in six minute blocks forget about it because you will never monetize yourself the way pablo picasso just did if you're invoicing your customer in six minute blocks you actually need to um you know communicate the value and the experience that you bring to the to the engagement i suppose that comes back to your notion about value-based pricing which is really good so absolutely like, do you have like some golden rules of pricing that you re recommend like everyone should follow um, I do. I should have got the list out before. <laughs> so I should have been prepared for this question, shouldn't I? I, I okay, um, I'll just jog your memory. Um, <laughs> I... No, no, let me, let, let me have a go. Let me go. So if you're going to put the price up, put the value up. If you're going to put the price down, put the value down. Um, if, you, um, if you're unsure, always start high because it's easier to, uh, to come down in price than it is to go up. Uh, what else have I got? <laughs> uh, value is contextual. Value is contextual. So we were talking about behavioural economics before. And again, this is the art versus the science thing. So famous experiment done by Richard Taylor, who won the 2017 Nobel Prize in Economics, the beer on the beach experiment. He asked students how much they prepared to pay for a beer when it was purchased at a, um, a five-star hotel. And I think at the time they said about $2.65. He then said, okay, I'm going to the rundown grocery store at the other end for the beach. How much prepared to pay for it now? $1.50. Traditional economics can't explain that because traditional economics assumes a rational man or woman and what they pay for the beer at the five-star hotel should be the same as what they pay for in the rundown grocery store. Behavioral economics says, no, that is wrong the context or the environment in which that purchase is being made is different. So there is a higher willingness to pay. Um, so that's, um, that's where the, the context is, um, is critical. The other thing that is critical is that value is in the eyes of the customer. So you can go in and talk to customers about value, but at the end of the day, they determine it. I remember years ago, I was working with a, a business that, um, provided um, leads from their websites to customers and they decided um, as part of their, the launch of their app, they were going to have the click to call functionality and they were going to charge for click to call leads as well. And when I went on a ride along with a, with a sales rep to see what the response would be from a, a customer and they said, I'm not paying for that. And the, the person said, why that's the most accountable form of ROI that we can provide for you. And he said, I don't want my phone ringing day or night. I want email leads and I'll respond to them when I want to. So that was an example where a certain assessment had been made of the value to the customer, but it was completely different from actually their perceptions of the value that they would get from the product. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I like that. That's really good. Um, so 
uh, you're quite experienced. Um, uh, for people who maybe don't know, you're the founder of Pricing Profits. Um, and uh, I'm really interested to see, like, who do you look up to um, in, in terms of, you know, intellectually from a pricing and perhaps a business perspective? Yeah, okay. Um, who do you maybe read I'll like, or like uh, who's, who's, I'll, I'll, whose work do you consume that you always come back to? I'll answer the, different, the, the, the question in a slightly different way, but I think it'll get to the same direction. The, the book I have read most recently that I've loved to bits has been Rory Sutherland's Alchemy book. <laughs> and I was just talking to Matt about this, and that's his, he collaborated um, uh, with Rory on his book uh, about CX. So. Yeah, it's an, absolute, it's an absolute cracker. And I think what's... Um, what really brings it to life is that um, if you've ever watched his TED Talks and anybody who's watching this should, if you haven't, please watch some of his uh, TED Talks. Um, I think on the cover of his book, he says TED, TED Talk Rockstar or something like that. But um, they're, they're magnificent talks. Um, but it, it actually translates in the book as well. So there's a, there's a lot of funny little jokes and quirks in footnotes. So if you do buy the book, read the footnotes as well, because they will crack you up. I, I didn't realise, for example, that there is actually a, a real word for the phobia of buttons. And Steve Jobs had a phobia of buttons, which is why the first iPad only had one button on it. He hated buttons. Uh, I didn't realise that. I thought it was a simplicity kind of thing that he was doing that for. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so Rory, Rory Sutherland, you know, he's nice and practical. I mean, the book starts, uh, the, the antidote in the first, the first chapter of the book is absolutely magnificent. Two blokes walk into an advertising agency and they say, uh, we need some help marketing a drink. It's, um, it tastes like the proverbial, we're going to sell it in smaller cans than Coke at prices twice the price of Coke. Can you help us? And they just laughed, you know, but it was Red Bull. And, you know, Red Bull are running Formula One teams these days. So, you know, sometimes it helps to think irrationally, but there's a whole lot of, um, you know, simple rules about um, irrational behaviour um, and, and thinking outside the box, which is, which is where Red Bull came from, sort of thinking outside the box. And, you know, if you think rationally, you'll get to exactly the same places your competitor is going to get to. True, true, true. I was actually reading something from um, Porter today, like some of his old work that talks about this convergence of, um, you know, using the same operational efficiency that everybody else is using. And the more you benchmark to everybody else, the more you converge into a similar area and you lose your competitive edge. So perhaps that's, yeah. that's the key there as well. Um, so you've mentioned one book, which is great. Um, so my next question is, is there like a, a website or something that you recommend, um, like your go-to website? Um, to learn more about your craft or intellectually that you recommend? Yeah. I, I sort of scatter my reading, you know, all over the place. The, the stuff I'm looking for just doesn't really pop up in a, in a central repository. But what I, what I, because of that, rather than answer your question, I'll, I'll answer another question. I use an app called Pocket, which really helps me with that. So, um, and it's, there's a, um, an iPhone app um, and you can, as a website as well. So if I see something that I really like, I can hit the pocket button on my browser and it puts it in this app for me and I can come back and read it at a later point. And once I've finished reading it, I can archive it, but it also has um, text to voice. So if I actually 
you know, want to listen to it rather than, than read it, um, it can do that as well. So I actually find that because my, um, you know, I sort of scan high and low for, you know, interesting readings and stuff like that, um, rather than single out any particular site, I'll single out that particular app that actually helps me you know, stay abreast of things. I like that. They're a lot more efficient than like copying URLs and putting them to a notepad or something, right? Um, yeah, so yeah, Harris absolutely. Was like, he was a big proponent of like Evernote or something like that. And, um, and that's why he used to use his repository for... Yeah, there's an interesting pricing story. Evernote. What did, I, I don't know the story. What, what happened there? Well, well Ever, Evernote was... I, I used to love Evernote. I thought it was, it was a great app and so forth. Um, but... And there's, there's case studies on this. I think what they did was they continually put more and more features in the product and they forgot to monetize it. And then all of us, and they, they got some, you know, really good funding and so forth. And then all of a sudden the investors said, hey, where, where's their money? Where's the return on this? Um, and that's when they, I don't know if you, you recall, they went to a two devices only model. Um, and they just lost a hell of a lot of customers because everyone was using it on, PCs, iPads, and phones, and all of a sudden oh, you had to make a this. yeah, and people you had to um, make a choice of two. Yeah, like people would have like an Apple uh, laptop or something at work, and then have a PC back home, and then have an Android phone, and then they're restricted. So like the whole like ubiquity of, of the product was like was savage yeah. because yeah, there was no point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, really interesting. One. Okay, so um, coming back to you then, um, let's go hardware now. Uh, you're wearing AirPods, um, but is there a piece of tech that you can't do without that sort of helps you do your job? Tech. Um, let's go hardware because you've mentioned software already. <laughs> well, I'm, a, I'm on a Mac. I've got an iPhone here. I've got a, a, an iPad downstairs. And what, she, actually, what I didn't realize is that each of those devices are meant for three different positions that the human body finds itself in. So the the, the laptop is when you're sitting in a chair, the iPad is when you're sitting on the couch and the iPhone is when you're walking around. That's, that's really... Or in bed. <laughs> or, or, yeah, or in bed. Um, or in your float tank, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... Um, yeah. There's, there's nothing really that, that stands out. Okay. okay, so let's just say you're you're a just an Apple guy ecosystem. You've you've fallen into the trap, and now they've upsold you to like multiple devices, and and pretty soon um, there'll be a search engine out as well. By the way, uh, an Apple search engine, so you can uh, get rid of all your Google products as well. I must admit, I haven't um, I haven't got big time in Apple TV or you know the the subscription services and so forth. Um, you know, there's still. I think they're still transiting to a subscription business. There, for me, I'm surrounded by their hardware, whether it's these things or phones and so forth. But I haven't really got into the um, the subscription business. And yeah, I know there are two or three trillion dollar company and so forth. Um, but I think. Um, you know, I was, I was writing about this recently, the price earnings ratio, which is a really good indicator of forward earnings for a company. It is a lot lower for Apple versus the, um, you know, the other subscription heavyweights, which are Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, and, um, and, or, and Adobe. Or Tesla, which is like a thousand or something crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 the jury's out for me on Tesla. Um, okay, what about this one then? Because um, I just got this tweet the other day from this really funny guy, um, Bettel. Um, I'll put the link in the comments anyway. He said, okay, the cost of an exercise bike is $299 US dollars. 
Um, an iPad costs 399 US dollars. An exercise bike with an iPad, Peloton charges $4,000, <laughs> which is like a multiple of seven. And then a company that sells a subscription for an exercise bike with an iPad on it, you know, AKA Peloton worth $30 billion. <laughs> so is that just like a, a good uh, way to price products based on value? Well, look, I think there, I certainly think there's, uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of a disconnect in many markets at the moment from economies and certain share prices. Um, and, you know, tech have been the big winner out of COVID, um, but there are some non-tech businesses who have incredible valuations at the moment. So I think it's really hard to make a call on, um, you know, the, the stock market and, um, and, and company valuations at the moment. Braver man than me will go there. We're calling it the Robin Hood factor, you know. Um, well, that's what people on the market are calling it. So um, <laughs> all those yeah. traders, you know, it's like 19... 19- 29 all over again but um yeah. okay uh, Te- with that, tesla's with- interesting though right have, have you have you looked at the price of electric cars i have i have um yeah, yeah what's yeah. what's the cheapest price you can get an electric car for isn't it like 30 no 30 or forty thousand usd is it or? Uh, well i th- i think in australia it's about 50. Uh, what 50 bloody million. yeah 50. yeah oh, like okay. a like a leaf or something like that plus you've got to get stuff installed at home and so forth Honestly, my honest opinion is electric vehicles need a bloody good price war because, you know, they're, they're phasing out the internal combustion engine, but nobody's, you know, people are still buying them because they're, you know, you can get a top of the range SUV CX-5 or something like that for the price of a distant leaf. Wow, what a decision. Which one are you going to go with? Then if you think back to, I can't remember what year it was, but... Um, there was a huge broadband pricing war just as broadband was starting to take up and dial-up dial internet access was the was de-rigger, if you like. And, and Telstra started this price board and it, 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 it was the tipping point, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's famous tipping point. It got everyone onto broadband. Um, and uh, people make decent money out of that. I, I think we need a... Um, a price war moment in electric well, vehicles. Well, with that said, we've got battery day on September 22nd, which is uh, just over a week away. So you may have your wish there because there's rumors that the, the price of, um, uh, they call it the million mile battery as well, but the price of creating one of these uh, engines or drivetrains uh, using electric propulsion will come under the cost of uh, natural aspiration engines and um, therefore you know, we'll cross that threshold barrier of having to decide between one or the other. Um, and maybe we'll get mass adoption that way. But um, yeah, yeah. Know, within a week. We need that tipping point. Yeah, I think, like, I think it's um, because of the Osborne effect. I think um, they've just been very um, sort of cagey about announcing this. But I, I think in a week, it will be announced that that, that is the case. Scoot. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of Tesla Teslarati, I call them on, on YouTube, uh, talking about the stuff. But they look at patents, they look at um, lots of other data as well that's publicly disclosed, and they put all you know two and two together, and it's not very hard to see what's happening there. So. How many quarters of profitability has Tesla had? <laughs> well, the last one was mostly from uh, trading of like credits or something, wasn't it? So like, profit <laughs> is very small if it wasn't for that. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is why they didn't get included in the S and P five hundred. But anyway, that's another discussion. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, well, coming back to you, um, what you, this is your chance to sort of pl- plug what 
you're promoting what you're doing right now, um, what's, what should I give a shout out to? Well, I guess, um, you know, pricing profits, I guess I started pricing profits in 2011 when I, I, I realized that, um, you know, for, for startups and small businesses, there wasn't affordable pricing opportunities. Um, you know, the, the, the big consultants do do pricing and it's just way out of the league of small business. So if I could find a, a different way to, um, to actually um, deliver the service and, and provide value, um, you know, that was, that was exciting to me. So the original version of pricing profits was, it was, to the best of my knowledge, it was the world's first crowdsourcing website for pricing. So people would come on, you'd say, okay, that picture in your background there, how much should I charge for that? And I'd get half a dozen of the experts already registered on the site to answer three questions. What price should you charge? What's the rationale for that price? And then any other advice they want to give. And then, um, you know, that, that sort of, um, that sort of lasted for about four or five years. But then when I spoke to people after they'd run their projects, they all said to me, oh, I've still got more questions. I've still got more questions. And at the time, a couple of people came to me and were happy to pay, prepay for telephone conversations with me. And I thought, well, maybe there's something in that. So I pivoted the business model to prepaid telephone conversations. Um, and the beauty of them is that there's no time restriction because the value I'm providing is answer to their questions. So I've created three products which answer three or four or five or six or eight or nine questions. So the value I'm providing is the answer to those questions. So if I can do that in 60 minutes, then that's great. If it takes two hours, then um, I'm still providing value. So that's the... Um, that's the model, and we've sort of helped. We've we've helped all sorts of um, all sorts of businesses. Um, you know, dog dog minding services. Um, what else comes? To... <laughs> she might come back one day. <laughs> the funny thing was, the funny thing was, the lady had actually written a best selling book. And now I didn't ask her which bestseller list it was on, but she'd written a bestseller book, How to Run a Brothel. It? It's like yeah, you can name the category <laughs> and get like bestseller status, yeah, depending yeah. on how obscure it is. So maybe yeah. something very Best bestseller on the dark web. That's it. <laughs> I love it. And, and I just note to the listeners as well, like, that's how I found you originally, was um, I was looking at pricing and then I came across pricing profits and I looked up this, this guy who started it called John and I was like, must be a good guy, good, great name. And um, that's why we're speaking today. So that's, that's awesome. It's an, issue, it's an interesting name. I, I um. The, um, I was looking for a, a name for the business like in 2011 and I, I'd sort of settled on Crowded Price, you know, Crowded House being a good Melbourne band and a play on words and so forth. But I was, I was doing some, um, I'd been doing workshops in China at that time and I'd come back on a flight from Shanghai and I hadn't slept the whole time. And I was standing at the baggage carousel at Melbourne Airport thinking, what am I going to call this business? And then this, this road case went around the carousel and it had community profits on, painted on it. P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. And I thought, that's it. And my bag was right after it. So I picked it up. I grabbed the taxi and I, I rang a Muslim mate of mine who's a Somalian guy by the name of Abdi. And I said, Abdi, I've come up with this name from my website, Pricing Profits. What do you think? And he said, as long as you don't want to be big in Saudi, you'll be fine. Um, and that, was, that was actually at the time when there was all the... Um, all the controversy around cartoons being printed oh, in newspapers and stuff like that. Yeah, it was even a bit before that. There was some, there was some cartoonists that were killed in Waco in Texas. 
I think. Oh yes. And the real and even funnier thing was I got the um, I got the logo designed on Ninety Nine Designs, and one of the art, one of the artists was an Indonesian guy, like a, from a Muslim country, and he put the profit on the draft of the logo. And I said, mate, can't do that. You know, there's just been people killed in Texas because of that. <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, it's it's quite neutral now, and I had no ambitions of being, um, a, you know, a, a big hit in Saudi Arabia. But every every other Muslim country sort of gets that there's well, so there's clear, two interpretations of the word profit. Clear, yeah, let's just let's be clear. It's pricing profits with a P-H-E-T-S. Uh, yes. Yeah. For a dot com. Um, okay, and um, <laughs> let's just say I really enjoyed this conversation, um, which is great. And it took me a while to to get to talk to you because you're a very busy man, and I appreciate your time. Um, but if someone else really connects with what we're saying, um, wants to ask you some more questions about pricing, um, should they go to pricingprofits.com and then ask for you, or is there a better way to connect with you? Yeah, look, just jump onto pricingprofits.com and there's there's phone numbers there or there's a online inquiry form. Um, and, you know, for me, I hear people say, oh, look me up on LinkedIn and stuff like that, but um, really just pick up the phone, I think. You know, <laughs> talking's a dying art for some people, but you know, it's the it's the easiest way to 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 get in touch. And maybe maybe mention, oh, you know, you found out about uh, John through uh, pricing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, champagne strategy podcast or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Perfect. Hey, well, I really want to thank you for your time. I think um, you you covered a lot of ground here, and um, I want to talk to you again, uh, obviously. But um, that was really great. We can do a sequel. Um, yeah, I, I think so. I think I want to go a bit deeper into some of these tactics um, and use some some use cases, but we only had a, a tiny bit of time tonight. So we both have to eat dinner. Um, but yeah, thanks again. Um, no problem. And uh, hope to speak to you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So I'll cut there. But yeah, thanks, John. Um, no problem. That, that was great. Uh, sorry, I didn't want to keep you too much longer because I know it was went a bit over. But um, is that that's okay? Right. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, great. Uh, I think we've got some really good content. But I told you to go off the off the rails a bit. <laughs> That's the best way because yeah, absolutely. Just, like um, yeah. you were just talking so well that I didn't really have to say anything. But sometimes <laughs> I gotta like you know go along. Yeah, with, um, yeah. But um, and also um, your internet cut out a tiny bit during the middle part. Um, but hopefully uh, okay. Um, uh, I'll do what I can to fix it up. Um, all right. My internet was shitty as well at the start, and it. This is Zoom. I've, I think I've got to upgrade systems or something to something better because um, they do dynamic uh, compression. So depending right. on your internet connection and where you are to the exchange, you, it will sort of curve your um, compression. It's it's really annoying. So um, let me know if there's a better system or something. But have you tried Teams? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Or like Google Meets or something. Yeah, I I, I use yeah. Teams for work, and I think. For me, the order is Teams, uh, Zoom, and then Hangouts. Yeah, yeah, because Hangouts in that order of preference. is good, but then it just cuts in and out, like yeah, 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 yeah. yeah really bad. But it's it's good if you're putting stuff up on YouTube and stuff like that, because you can just yeah, what's someone doing, right? Like so that and yeah. LinkedIn. So like, if there's an issue, I'll just compress it down anyway, anyway, smaller. But um, hey, let's let's talk again soon. I'm I'm really um, yeah. I really like that conversation. You're on the heroin now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, the pricing heroin. I was trying to chug my memory because I wrote this so long ago before um, I sort of refined yeah, my process. Yeah, it's been a while. Right? And I went back to the Word document. And I was like, what the fuck is all that like blurb that I read? And I'm like, oh my God, no one's going to read you, that. Did you listen to the Beers, Blokes and Business podcasts that we did? Uh, who, what was that again? I listened to three the, or four of yours. 
So there's there's the website isn't up anymore, but the two podcast I did two episodes of the Beers Blokes and Business podcast, and it just it's just a rant. It's, oh, really? it's really fun, and they the the first one was so much fun. They got me back for a second one. Um, so there's I um, think th- that does ring a bell to be honest. Yeah, um, but. Oh, I'm just trying to think of the links. Sometimes I don't put the links in here of the ones that I've listened to. No, I don't think I did. No, um, but I downloaded the MP3, you know, the MP file, and it's it's in the um, the resource center on pricing profits. So oh, both good. episodes are there. Okay. Um, and also, you like Ovens, King Valley, Vic Tobacco Road, Shiraz, Gapstead. Okay, so you like King Valley, and so I've got a I've got a caravan at the bottom of Mount Buffalo. So when when I can move. I sort of nip up there for weekends and stuff. Oh, great. Um, yeah, I mean... That's sort of bright. Yeah, well, some of my favourite regions are, are, like, up in the hills of bright there. Um, you get high yeah. acid wines, really clean. And then, obviously, Beechworth, a bit sort of over to the um, yeah. west, yeah. right? Yeah, back towards um, Albury. One of my favourite areas is Beechworth. Don't tell anybody else. Um, and I get some really good pinots and shards from there. Um, okay, so gin. What, what, what's this gin-making class? I've got to ask about this because I'm having oh, a so the- tasting next month. Are you? So yeah. there's a um, whereabouts in Melbourne are you? I'm actually in Brizzy now, but normally I'm oh. in Melbourne. Yeah, so I was oh, right. um, so, <laughs> so in Richmond there is a little gin distillery called Brogan's Way. It's right next it's across the road from the Mountain Goat Brewery. Yeah, I know Mountain Goat, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so across the road, it's sort of a very nondescript sort of warehouse. And um, this girl Brogan makes gins there. She studied gin making at a um she studied distilling in Scotland yeah. and she's started up this, um, this gin distillery and they do gin making classes and gin tasting as well. So the 1st of December last year, we went on a gin making class and you pick all the botanicals and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they brew it up in a sort of quick 30 minute um, distillation while you're there. Hang on, what's like in a copper? Still, yeah, in a little copper still, yeah, yeah. okay. Like and then, one. if you like it, then they do a, a, a full batch. So, there's about 12 in the class, and you all get a 700 mil bottle uh, at the end. Uh, okay, because um, my ex girlfriend was a flavor chemist, right? So, um, we talk about the actual like chemical additions that oh, you put yeah. in. The ice Who'd she work for? Uh, well, she works for PepsiCo now for head of RD, uh, um, but um, before it was IFF, which is the big international flavor and fragrances that i did some that. stuff with give a darn once which is yeah, uh yeah yeah, yeah 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 that was one of the competitors yeah for sure yeah um yeah yeah um interesting people very rock star kind of chemists that you'll ever meet um and obviously like when i taste wine and stuff i'm like okay it tastes like berries or this or that and she's like this tastes like i'm i saw my molestate with like gamma hydroxide and blah 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 and i was like what the hell are you talking about <laughs> well <laughs> so, i bet you if you if you ever drive if you ever walk past the Crown Casino in Melbourne, you will you can smell it, right? That yes, scent, yeah. that's that scent is specifically designed to get people to spend money. I know. Oh, it just creates that um, association with the smell. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and the experience. Yeah. Um, a lot of hotels do that as well. So Mercure, Accor hotels. I've yeah. Done that a lot. Novotel, Mercure, um, Sofitel, the Shore. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Anyway, I'm rambling, but I want to talk to you. Um, I know you've had a no big day, so really appreciate your time. I, I don't want to keep you any longer. So. Pleasure. Yeah. All right. Take All right. it easy. Talk soon. See ya. See you, buddy.